Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab bint Yunus. Today's episode is part two of the Happily Ever After miniseries, which will be focused on all things Muslim and marriage. Today's guest is very special. Uh, it is Sheikh Dr. Hatim al-Hajj, one of the most notable Islamic scholars in the West of our time. Dr. Hatim was born in Cairo, Egypt, and currently resides in New Jersey, USA. He was granted his PhD in comparative fiqh from al University, Lebanon and his master's degree in Islamic law from the American Open University. He's also a board certified in pediatrics and pediatric hospital medicine by the American Board of Pediatrics. And he is also a senior member of the Fatwa Committee of Amja and a fellow at the American Academy of Pediatrics. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Hassan, for joining us today. It's really an honor to be able to have you on the Muslim Matters podcast. Well, welcome, sister. Thank you very much for inviting so the topic today is about the Muslim marriage crisis and Muslim marriage issues. So the Muslim marriage crisis is a term that has been flying around for years. It's only intensified as the time goes on. And there are just so many issues and questions that Muslim men and women are grappling with um, when it comes to getting married and issues surrounding marriage. And certainly one of the most controversial topics that constantly comes up in discussions about Islam and marriage are the rights and obligation side, and most especially the idea of wifely obedience to husbands. On one hand, we have you know many Muslim men who insist that they have unrestricted authority over their wives. And on the other hand, it can be extremely difficult for many Muslim women to even fathom the idea or the concept that husbands have any kind of authority over them to dictate what they can and cannot do. So to start with, how can we begin to even address this discussion in a very healthy, holistic, balanced manner that reflects the true aims of the Sharia and, of course, encompasses all the details and the texts that we have? Certainly, this this discussion is is timely, and where we're having a marriage crisis not only within our community but worldwide, to be honest, and that crisis is quite consequential for the well-being of our community, the well-being of our ummah. So this is a very timely discussion. And in order for us to start the discussion the right way, we have to basically identify our reference point. Our reference point as Muslims, our reference point as Muslim couples, our reference point also as, you know, Muslim sons-in-law and daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law. And, you know, we have to identify a reference point for all of us, for all of our relationships, particularly family relationships. The reference point has to be Islam. Uh, We're talking about Islamic marriage, and Islam provides a unity of purpose and a common background for Muslim couples. And this is extremely important to, to have a common background and to have oneness of purpose or in purpose. So Islam provides that for us. But what is Islam? That's an important question to, to ask. Islam according to whom? So is it Islamic orthodoxy? What is, what is Islamic orthodoxy? And how can we identify Islamic orthodoxy? And where can we know what Islam says 
and can we know that for certain or not? Uh, these are all questions that are pertinent to our discussion, even though not may not be you know part of the core discussion today, but uh, still extremely pertinent. Uh, they provide a foundation for uh, any uh, discussion. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in Surah An-Nisa' 'Fala Rabbika la yu'minuna hatta yuhakimuka fi ma shajara bainahum, thumma lajidu fi anfusi muharrajan mimma qadait.'" We will send him with a slimmer. Nay, by your Lord, they will not uh, have true faith or they will not have true belief until they make you judge in the matters uh, or in the disputes uh, uh, that arise between them or in whatever they dispute over and have no discomfort in their hearts from that which you have decreed or have no resistance to uh, your decree. Uh, certainly, the, Allah subhanahu wa is addressing Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi So, whatever the Prophet sallallahu had brought to us, we need to uh, to have no discomfort in our hearts or resistance in our hearts against it. And this is important, and if we agree on this, then we move on to the next uh, point, which is which Islam, who the who, who basically defines the Islamic rulings and what is orthodoxy, and do you know Islamic rulings change over time because Certainly, circumstances uh, change and world conditions have changed a great deal, uh, particularly in the last 200 years. So, do the rulings change? And what does that mean? So, certainly, that this is, uh, like I said, this is not the subject matter of this discussion. So, I w have to be brief. These are very important issues, but I'll have to be br brief. Islamic orthodoxy, we can basically have a functional definition of Islamic orthodoxy. Islamic orthodoxy, when it comes, or orthopraxy, we may say, because it's it's about the laws. When it comes to the laws, we, uh, we're talking about the, the four mazahib being at the heart of Islamic orthodoxy. That is not to say that, that the truth is limited to the form of Zahib, and there is no truth outside of the form of Zahib, that would be a flawed uh, proposition for sure, because that the proofs that support the proofs that support the concept of Ijma'a or the concept of consensus in Islam are cannot be applied uh, to the agreement of the form of Zahib. Uh, we're talking about the consensus, the infallible consensus. Is that uh, the entire ummah, or the old uh, learned class of this ummah, or the scholars of of this ummah? But at the heart of or Islamic orthodoxy are the, the form of Zahib and Thang. Positions from all sides of the form of Zahib still can be mainstreamed, still can be accepted. But it takes a little, you know, it takes a process for them to be accepted and mainstreamed and become part of the orthodoxy. These positions have, you know. There are certain conditions to be met. One of them is that the whoever uh, spoke of that of that position or supported that position needs to be on that also needs to be capable of deducing rulings from Quran and and the Sunnah. Uh, so they need to be on that, and that is a very sort of special and high uh, position among the the scholars. And there are degrees of which they had, uh, but, but that's a different discussion. Uh, so they need to be on which they had. And uh, in addition to this, the position has to have some substantiation, uh, some backing, you know, from the Quran and uh, the Sunnah. And it needs to be uh, sort of it needs to enjoy some some widespread acceptance. It doesn't have to be the majority of the Ummah, but some widespread acceptance among the Muslim scholars. So it needs to be a position that has not been completely abandoned by Muslim scholars. So that is 
That is Islamic orthodoxy, and that is what we need to refer to in the time of disputation. Now, the, the other issue is, do the rulings change? That's also a valid question. Do the rulings change? And in fact, in Majalat al-Hakam al-Adliya, which is the Ottoman manual code used for the Ottoman courts, they said that the change of rulings with the change of times uh, should not be denounced. And uh, different phrasings that are have the same meaning have been used by many verifying erudite uh, scholars, such as Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Shatabi, Shabkani, and others. So what does that mean? It means that it does not mean that the hukm of Allah, that, that the word of Allah, or the sort of the clause address to his servants uh, changes, but it means that with the change of circumstances and the change of people's conditions and change of world conditions, the same basically objectives of the Sharia uh, need, we need to, to work for attaining the, the, the same objectives or for realizing uh, the same objectives of the Sharia by uh, change of fatwa. So fatwa may change because we're, we're looking to realize, you know, an objective of the Sharia that, that has to be realized in a different way because of the change of, of times. There are several examples that, that we can give, like during the time of the Prophet stray camels used to be left alone. Osman ibn Affan, during his time, he said, no, bring, bring them, catch them, because Medina had become uh, a cosmopolitan city during the time of Uthman ibn and it was not just, it was not like the time of the Prophet people, some people in the Medina were like fewer, and they were mostly the Sahaba of the Prophet and, and so on and so forth. So for the, because of the change of times, Uthman, Uthman changed the fatwa. Not everyone followed Uthman in the, in the change of fatwa, but, you know, some did. The same applies to the, the Diyya, or the blood money, Omar who because the Muslim uh, state became so vast uh, geographically, and people moved, and people were not living anymore in a limited geographic area. So blood money that is that is paid, it used to be the responsibility for for mistaken killing, for instance. Uh, it used to be the responsibility of the pilot, uh, which is you know, which is the the, the paternal uh, kin, but. During the time of Omar or the Allah, because people had moved around, and it would be very hard to make the Apila, which may be like thousands of miles away, responsible for blood money. Omar or the Allah said that it would be it was be it would be the responsibility of the members of the same registry. So that's a change to realize the objective. The objective here is, is that we are able to compensate the family of the victim. If that is the objective that we were to you know to realize that objective. So that's a change of fatwa. Now who, to, who how do we do this? We do this with while still respecting three major identifiers of sort of the, the process, the, the, the process of ijtihad. Uh, one is the objectives of Sharia. We have to be always conscious of the objectives of Sharia. Two is the same hermeneutical system that have been always used. So incremental improvements of the hermeneutical system are accepted, but an overhaul is unwarranted. So we're using the same hermeneutical system that we have always used. Uh, and third, the same legal principles. And the person that the people who have who do this need to be of the erudite scholars, need to be of the mujtahideen, 
And uh, to add another sort of uh, safety check, there needs to be some widespread acceptance. It's, it would be either collective istihad from the get-go or uh, an individual istihad that enjoyed afterwards some widespread acceptance among the scholars. So it is a process, and the, the Islam is, is a flexible religion. The legal system of Islam is, is flexible because it was meant to be the final religion, and it was meant to adjust and adapt to well, the changes in, in, in times and places and conditions and circumstances, and so on and so forth. So that, that's another important concept. The following one is the concept of advocacy for uh, womankind. It is that it is the right of women to advocate for women. This idea, I don't like, you know, I don't like the many isms. I, I am a little bit sensitive to or averse to uh, a lot of isms. In fact, any time people add an ism to any anything it, it ruins because it, it's about the ideology and and about people start to become deaf to other arguments that they don't uh, like or that are that doesn't do not conform to uh, their ideology and that creates like fanaticism and so on and so forth but do women have the right to advocate for women's rights? Yes, that's that's fine. Aisha did, Um Salama did, Asma Abinti Yazid ibn Sakan did. Women did speak up. They did talk about women, you know, their issues, the issues that pertain to them. However, in order for this to be still wholesome, to be still halal, to be still good, it needs to be, you know, with, within the system using the same hermeneutics we have used in, in our tradition. It would be helpful when we have women scholars. More women scholars are needed. We want to have more uh, female scholars because they would be more aware of the challenges that women encounter and more capable of addressing them. So sometimes there are very sensitive issues that that women that men may not be quite familiar with relate to purification and, and things of that nature. So we do have them. We it it would certainly be helpful to have. Uh, more female scholars and women do have the right to advocate uh, for women, but we we need to do this. They will not find any system that is that is better to women than than Islam. And a believing woman should actually be very confident in that. If a, a believing woman means that she believes that Islam is the final message from God to humanity, uh, to mankind, a believing woman would be quite confident in that. So let us not die in pursuit of water when it well, while it is on our back you know it's it's a it's a proverb a camel who died in pursuit of water while the water was on its back so it means that it's there it can advocate for women's rights uh using islam using our heritage and and most importantly using the revelation of the quran uh the authentic sunnah of the prophet finally the last thing i wanted to mention here in this introduction is that marriage, Islamic marriage, uh, does not thrive on justice. And marriage in general does not thrive on justice. Basic principle in marriage is, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Surah Al-Baqarah, it's a longer, you know, it's, it's a long verse. It's, it's a verse about, you know, the alimony that is given to women at the time of divorce. And if, uh, you know, if divorce happened, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذْ تَلَّقْتُمْ وَنَّ بِالْقَبِيَةَ تَمْسُوْنَ وَنَّ فَرِيضَ فَنَسْمَوْا فَرَاتُمْ مِنْ لَا يَعْفُونَ وَيَعْ
وقدت النكاح وان تعفوا اقرب للتقوى ولا تنسوا فضل بينكم من الضعيف ما تعملون بصير. So point here is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to them, you know, when when a dowry has been designated and divorce takes place prior to consummation of marriage, then the woman is entitled to half of the dowry unless she forgoes that half or the husband forgoes, you know, the other half and and, and gives it gives her the entire dowry. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to act gracious or to be gracious is closer to piety. And he said, Don't forget graciousness in the dealings between you. Uh, so graciousness is what marriage can thrive on, not just justice. Having said that, is it important to know what justice is? Of course, because you know, you, how do you be? How can you be gracious without being just, without being fair, without knowing the principles of fairness? If graciousness is basically going above and beyond your obligations and, and willing to compromise on your rights, how could you be gracious if you don't know what are the obligations and what are the rights? And you have to determine where that line is. Keep sort of uh, like uh, away from it. Don't demand 100% of your rights, such as Abdul, what Abdullah ibn Abbas said. Abdullah ibn Abbas said, I, I never demand 100% of my rights from my wife. And I'm sure Allah says they have a degree over them according to reason. But he says that I like to make myself handsome or to look handsome to my wife as much as I like her to be the fight herself for me because Allah says, And due to them, to women, is similar to that which is expected of them. So it's it's the balance between rights and like obligations. It's equity. So Abdullah ibn Abbas said, if I want to, her to be a fire herself for, for, for me, then I should reciprocate and try to look handsome to her, to please her as well. And then he said, and I never ask for all of my rights. And I never ask, demand all of my rights. And that is the attitude of someone who is uh, conscious of God. Uh, you fulfill 120% of your obligations, 150% of your obligations, and you demand 70 or 80% of your rights. And, and that will keep you safe from transgression. Because, you know, if, if you want to uh, deliver or fulfill 100% of your obligations and demand 100% of your rights, whoever told you that you can tell exactly what are the obligations and the rights? Whoever told you that you may not fall short in fulfilling your obligations, or you may not transgress in demanding your rights, to be safe and to be of the children of Al-Akhirah that are more concerned about their well-being in Al-Akhirah, you want to discharge all of your obligations and go above and beyond that, and you want to demand less than 100% of your rights, you want to compromise on your rights, to stay safe and to not fall in transgression in any form of oppression or any form of transgression. Just to interrupt you really quickly, I'm so sorry, um, but just to backtrack a little bit, when you're speaking about a marriage doesn't thrive on justice, um, could we narrow that down or elaborate a little bit more? Do you mean by justice, meaning like the bare minimum legal rulings, as opposed to as what you were talking about, the graciousness that we have in going above and beyond in fulfilling the obligations the other person has on us versus, um, you know, demanding those rights from them. To some extent, it's ad it's allegorical because justice is, is certainly the greatest thing and a marriage would thrive on justice, but it would not thrive 
on justice as we think of justice. Because if if you want to be just and just just, not gracious, then oftentimes, you know, scholars disagree over over what is just, right? Add to this your personal bias, add to this the fact that most of us are not scholars, add to this our personal bias, how could we know if, if we set out to be just just and fair, we will often fall short and we will often transgress. But if we set out to be gracious and to fulfill, you know, to go above and beyond our obligations, if we fall short, we fall short back to justice and not to injustice. So a safety cushion, a buffer zone between us and transgression is needed. And that buffer zone is is basically asking or demanding less than all of your rights and fulfilling more than all of your obligations. All right, that definitely clarifies it. Jazakallah khair for that. And just before we jump into the next section, um, while you're talking about, you know, the changes in fatawa and the conditions of these fatawa to be changed would and you did mention that you know female scholarship is so important and so needed especially when it comes to advocacy of women and women's rights within a sharia framework would you venture to say that the way much of the marital fiqh discourse has been influenced in any way by the predominance of male legal scholarship that we draw upon Okay, this is a very good question. I have to say that when you have more women involved in in this in these forms of ijtihad, uh, that certainly would be helpful. Would be helpful for the cause of women. Is the is male bias in our heritage a malicious? Is our heritage biased? No, we were not biased against women. And I just want to, you know, I just want to plead to people to understand this. So, so this is an audio recording. But if this were, were a video recording, you would have seen that I am an older man with a gray beard. The, the typical sort of image of male bias. But I want you to understand that I also have three daughters, and I, I am also like concerned about their dignity and. I have three daughters and a son, and so when my daughters get married, I would be concerned about how they will be treated, and I may be more concerned about this than I am concerned about myself. That is so natural, and that is what I expect of our scholars of the past and the present. So, main bias, you know, by the time you're 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 by the time you become a mujtahid and you contribute to the the you know, that body of it's the had. You already have daughters that are about to get married or married, and you may actually be biased in their favor because you, you know, men, I would say this about most Muslim men, men in general, they have sort of like a lot of affection for their daughters and they have extreme concern about them and, and about their well-being and about their dignity and so on and so forth. But sometimes males may not be aware of certain challenges that females encounter. So that is why I'm saying that it it does help when you have uh, female scholars. I'm going to push you a little bit further just on this topic um, of, okay, so you clarified that they was the male bias or is male bias malicious from scholarship? And I think we can all agree, no, it wasn't malicious um, and perhaps not intentional. 
But the question does arise, and this is something that I've actually received from a lot of women, whether they're students of knowledge themselves or they are lay women who have come across uh, translated works from classical scholars. For example, Tafsir ibn Kathir does have uh, in his Tafsir of, uh, you know, the Ayat of Qiwama, where there is kind of a, a segue into discussing the inferior nature of women. And most women who come across this are going to feel what is this clearly negative bias against women? Uh, and how do we reconcile that with the idea that there is no male bias or there's no malicious male bias against women in our scholarship? And it's not just Ibn Kathir. There are other discourses and discussions as well uh, where you know female nature is discussed and it is portrayed in a often a very negative way perspective even if they conclude okay and this is why men should be extra good to women or sometimes unfortunately it doesn't go that way sometimes it's well and because of this nature of women you know the man has more rights over her and she should be more cautious about obeying the husband or doing what the husband says because you know she is not able to distinguish for herself what is right and what is wrong and at risk of you know turning this into a, a different topic but i do want to address this because it often informs much of this marital discussion and when you know muslim men and women are having these conversations between themselves and you know examples from ibn kathir's tafsir or other scholarly works will be thrown out and it will be said to women oh you see this is what the scholars thought of you as women and this is why you are this and this is why you are that and this is why we have this and we have this and we have this how would you address this Many things to be said here. One, one of them is these scholars are not infallible. They are not the Prophet So we don't have to take everything they give us, but we cannot afford to throw away our sort of heritage, uh, Islamic heritage, or all of uh, Islamic orthodoxy, or the the uh, contributions of the prophets, you now of the scholars of the past, in relaying Islam to us and interpreting Islam for us. That we cannot afford to do this. We cannot. Afford or to sort of demolish the whole structure and start and you were afresh. It's just not prudent and it's complete. It's extremely unsafe. So we will do uh, some filtering and we will do, we will understand that these scholars are also products of their times. The revelation is supreme. Their understanding of the revelation does not always reflect, reflect the accurate interpretation. Uh, but whenever there is a consensus, that consensus is, is binding. The thing is, the consensus is extremely rare, particularly in, in these types of uh, discussions, consensus would be extremely rare but whenever whenever there was a consensus that is that that is infallible but a particular scholar's position is never infallible and then we will have to examine it but also we have to examine it when we examine their bias we're examining their bias through our bias aren't we or are we not biased or are we not the products of our times? Or, uh, you know, are we walking for hands? Like Aisha radiallahu described to the Prophet We have to be honest with ourselves also. We are products of our times and we are products of our place also. Like, where do we live? Uh, it does not have any influence on us. And when it comes to, to the issues of women in particular, don't we recognize that there is, uh, that women, men and women are equal in their humanity, but don't we recognize that there are certain faculties that where women may be stronger than men and vice versa? Imam Nukayim, for instance, when he talked about custody and when they gave women custody, these are the scholars who gave 
when in custody over men. And the, he said, because they are more capable, he said, did not say, you know, because the, he, he said that they may have more time, but he made this the last thing. He said that they are more compassionate and more capable. So is, is more compassionate, like, should men be upset? Should men be, you know, feel insulted because he, he thinks that women are more compassionate and be, because he thinks that women are more capable in this area? I don't think so. That also has to be taken in consideration because we do have, we do have different strengths and weaknesses. There are differences between the two genders. Men and women are equal in the sight of God. The Prophet said, which means that men are the equal halves of women. The man is one half, the woman is the equal half. If, if you bring like a loaf of paper, uh, I'm sorry, a handful of bread, and you cover it two halves, the one half is the woman, one half is the man. That's that's what it means in Shaqif means uh, the sibling, so, but it also means uh, the one half when you cut one one thing into two halves, one half would be that, and the other half would be the other shakib. So it, it is clear that men and women are equal in their humanity, but they have different strengths and weaknesses, and one gender may have greater strength in one area than the other. So going back to recognizing that, of course, the past scholars had their own um, their own biases or you know were shaped and formed by their context, we generally hold that, yes, of course, we are to be cognizant of our own context as well. Um, there are two issues that come up, though. So one of them is the idea that many Muslims have that we cannot do this uh, checking or filtering for past scholars because they might not be infallible, but they knew better than us and they were better than us. So their contexts were better than ours. Therefore, when we are questioning these types of statements, it is the problem lies not in their statements, but the problem lies in our context. And we are the ones who hold the problematic framework. And of course, to some extent, we do have problematic elements within our framework because, of course, we are products of our context and that is not infallible or perfect either. So that's the, the first issue. And the second one is how do we address the existence of these kinds of negative statements about women when they're used as a type of difference of opinion to be respected, specifically within these gendered marital issues uh, when they're being discussed between men and women? And this includes not just lay people, but even you know students of knowledge and uh, and scholars themselves or shiuch themselves will say, well, you know, this, this imam said this, this sheikh said this, you cannot question it, you can't reject it you have to accept that it is a valid opinion it could very well be right and uh, and it's to be respected and if you disagree with it then you are now contradicting or going against our tradition as a whole and like i said before consensus is what's infallible an individual statement or individual position of an imam is not infallible we have to be respectful but we don't necessarily need to take uh, everything one person gives us other than the Prophet as Imam Malik said. The issue here is you, br you bring in the different positions of the different scholars and you examine them in light of the revelation and and, and, and certainly to some extent the, the, the text interacts with the, with the reality at different times in different ways. So your bias may be part of that reaction, part of that sort of interaction between the text and reality. 
So, but we have to have some guardrails. We have to have some guidelines. We can't throw away all of their sort of uh, interpretations of of the revelation. We will, like I, like we will do probably now when you come up with uh, your questions. So we will address. We will say that this have said this, that have said that. It seems from Quran and the Sunnah that this is closer to the truth. Now, when we do this and when we make tardih, could our bias affect our tardih? It is possible that our bias would affect our tardih. Uh, the context that we live in may may uh, make us somewhat biased, and it may affect our tardih, and that is still acceptable because we do have some guardrails. It's not like we're throwing away the consensus of scholars. It's not like we're coming up with interpretations that are in complete discord with uh, primary meanings of the Quran and Sunnah. But the way we are doing our own synthesis may be different, and that synthesis may be influenced by our circumstances and and our environment, our intellectual milieu, and 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 the changes in world conditions that make things uh, that make a change warranted. I am I'm telling you that sometimes we know what the, what they said, and we say that the fatwa will need to change now because there are circumstances that warrant the change of fatwa. You know, so now women, for instance, have a close to similar earning potential like men. Should we take this in consideration when we address issues of alimony, when we address it for, for like a, a stay-at-home mom, for instance, after 30 years of marriage, and if her husband decided to divorce her, should she, she just walk out empty-handed? Or should we understand that she sacrificed for the family and she had a similar earning potential like him or close to similar earning potential like her and we compensate her uh, through still through the muta uh, concept which is still an islamic concept so there, there is basically room for for a change of patwa but that has to be within the guided process that I spoke about earlier. We're trying to realize the same objectives. We're being, you know, trying to conform to the same hermeneutical system and to be also in conformity with the same legal principles. Despite all of these guardrails, there is still a lot of room for a change of fatwa because the legal system of Islam itself provides the mechanisms for that. So that Islam may stay viable, bite, and, and basically applicable and relevant. Jazakallah khair for that excellent, very thorough introduction and laying down that very valuable framework that we all need before we launch into a discussion as contentious as this one. So I, I really appreciate that. Barakallah Um Now moving on. So now that we have established that framework and those foundations, before we go into the nitty-gritty of, you know, obedience and so on and so forth, what are the basic principles of a healthy Islamic marriage that these rulings and these discussions are all based on to begin with? Just so that we can start off this conversation, now that we have the, the legal framework set down, um, now we have more of the holistic, uh, ethical, moral principles of a healthy Islamic marriage. 
certainly everybody who has caught this person آتي أن خلق لكم من أنفسكم أزواجا لتسكنوا إليها وجعل بينكم مودة ورحمة إن في ذلك الآيات لقوم يتفكرون. So it's one of the signs that he creates for you uh, mates to dwell with in peace or to end well with uh, in tranquility and uh, create between you and uh, or placed between you compassion and mercy. Early in these are signs for people who reflect. So you know tranquility, compassion. And mercy. It's like the bird uh, that has a head and 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 two wings. And the the, the the these are three principles that an Islamic marriage should be should be founded on. And so during the times, uh, you know, people go through good times and bad times. During good times, there is compassion, there is ma'adda, there is love. During you know bad bad times, there should be mercy. During all times, there should be tranquility, and uh, people should. continue to be restrained, continue to be conscious of God, continue to be watchful of their conduct, and there should be tranquility uh, during all times. I also talked about graciousness being the basis of Islamic marriage uh, versus justice, because that's a, that is an extremely important concept, not only because, you know, we... Because we cannot know what justice is, but because justice also would create a very... A sort of legalistic relationship that may not be sustainable and that may not weather the, the challenges of, of life. Uh, there may not be enough of repository of love and compassion and affection to, uh, to, ha- to be able to maneuver through the challenges that the, this institution may encounter. The other thing that, that is also important is that we understand that males and females, we understand how important Islam is for us. The family that prays together stays together, they say. And the Prophet said, So the Prophet in a hadith that's supported by the Mustad, He says, may Allah have mercy on a man who wakes up at night to pray and then wakes his wife up. And if she doesn't wake up, he sprinkles water in her face. And may Allah have mercy on a woman who wakes up at night to pray and and wakes her husband up. And if he does not wake up, she sprinkles sprinkles water in his face. You know, gently and lovingly, of course. Uh, but the, the point here is that the Prophet is telling us pray together, you know, have this common purpose, have this oneness or unity of purpose and uh, this common background. And it's important for us to realize that, you know, if we truly believe that Islam came down for us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for, to guide us in this life to our happiness here and in the hereafter, then we should learn it together because if we're if learning it together is important also because we need to be on the same page to, to be able to speak the same language and to have a common background so so it so that's that's particularly important and we we need also because nowadays certainly that there you know and i'm speaking to to my sisters here and uh daughters Because it's it's quite clear that that women have been historically the weaker party in this institution, and because they have been, they have been transgressed. Uh, many, you know, it, it doesn't mean that men are always the transgressors or have been always the transgressors, 
Now, women have also transgressed a great deal, but they have been transgressed the big, big chunks of the history of humanity because they were the weaker party in this by institution. And now that they feel that they have the ability to basically <laughs> to push back against men, uh, this is creating a lot of chaos. And I, I just want our sisters, like I said before, to work within the system to uh, advocate for your rights so that you can stay Muslim. Because if you make the system your adversary, to make our value system, our Islamic value system your adversary, you will grow resentful. Get to accept it, adopt it, embrace it, and work within it to ask for your rights, to advocate for your rights, because that is extremely possible and you will not find the system that is better for women than our system and understand that you know whatever modern life had given us and we live in the west i i personally don't like you know i i'm an immigrant and most of you uh, most of the audience are probably not so it's not a matter of islam versus the west islam is a religion the west is you know a civilization that has certain characteristics the west also is not homogenous there there are people here in the west that are pretty traditional and they want to live a traditional life and they want to have traditional families and and, and so on and so forth so, but the, the mainstream modern culture is has promised women a lot of promises but but actually failed to secure any of those promises for women and it's quite clear that we're having a marriage crisis and you look at the statistics here in the united kingdom more even than here and in the U.S., marriage statistics, whether it is people wanting to get married or people staying in marriage, there, there is, what's her name, Suzanne Benker, she wrote uh, Why Men uh, Won't Marry You. Uh, Lena Price wrote another piece also that that I read some time ago, a few weeks ago, about why men are don't want to marry anymore or something like this. These, you, you could Google those can realize that w that there is a marriage crisis and and that modern culture did not really provide women with that ha promised happiness because without the institution of marriage without the institution of marriage we will all suffer but our sisters will, will suffer a little bit more than, than men or women will suffer a little bit more if we destroy the institution of marriage and look at what the institution of marriage look at what this contract had done historically to women to preserve the dignity of women women you know are our mothers our sisters our daughters so it is you know their dignity is our dignity but that's what the institution of marriage did it preserved the dignity of women and look at you know plato's republic look at the place of women in plato's republic and what plato you know and these are the philosophers these are not Plato was also not any philosopher, but he was inclined to goodness. And, you know, Platonic philosophy has been incorporated in most of the theistic traditions or the three Abrahamic uh, traditions, uh, because Plato was, you know, a good philosopher and he wanted goodness and he advocates for goodness and so on. But look at the place of women in his Republic. Look at Aristotle's rebuttal of, of uh, Plato and how he says that, you know, shared property property does not get, you know, uh, enough attention from anyone. And that's why he rejected Plato's idea of, of you know, of ha having women as shared property in his republic. So anyway, I just want to say that Islam really is, you know, our refuge. Islam is our fortress. And we should go back to Islam, all of us, men and women, and understand it well. 
and understand it correctly uh, and not aim to use it against each other, but aim to embrace it and to live by it. And whatever it uh, basically advances rights, we, we ask for them to be fulfilled. I completely agree with you about going back to Islam and using the Islamic framework. Um, and it's an interesting point that you make about marriage meant to preserve the dignity of women because one of the questions, or not one of the questions, but so many of the questions that I and female scholars and female students of knowledge get are from Muslim women who aren't looking outside of Islam to begin with, but they are genuinely questioning how is the dignity of women being protected by the legal framework of marriage in Islam. And that segues into our overall discussion because, again, the one of, if not the most contentious issue that comes up is if marriage is supposed to protect women, if marriage is supposed to protect women's dignity, if marriage is supposed to be a source of comfort and safety for women, how do we conceptualize this issue of wifely obedience to husbands in Islam as something that is mandated when unfortunately in reality as I'm sure you know even better than I do so many women are actually being abused and mistreated with this concept so how would you explain and define what wifely obedience to husbands is in Islam in fiqh particularly and how does it have any relationship to the ayah uh, um, what does ma'roof mean is it uh, limiting wifely obedience? Does it give space for women to be able to express themselves or disagree or even object at times? Um, just, you know, let's just jump right into that. Okay, sure. So, so wifely obedience, the first thing that we have to establish is whether there is such a concept in Islam. And yes, there is such a concept in Islam because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so how do we how do we translate this? We translate this, the people translate it in different ways, and they tried to capture some of the meanings of Piwama in their translations. So they translated this as the managers, the protectors, the maintainers. Men are in charge of women, protectors and maintainers sometimes, protectors sometimes, and maintainers sometimes, and both. But it, it is basically a position of both responsibility and authority, because they come hand in hand. I mean, you can't, you can't expect people to be responsible without giving them some authority. So if they are the protectors and maintainers, they are also in charge, and they are also the managers. Uh, so it is all, all of them together. But... The way this, uh, you know, the, 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 the linguistic roots of this have to do with more with caretakers, you know. It's like, you know, Allah is a qayyum, so uh, because Allah is the one who maintains everything and he doesn't need anyone sort of to... The concept of qayyum qayyum here is, is that Allah maintains the heavens and the earth and all creations and, and so on and so forth. And they come from the same root. So qayyum is, is both you know, responsibility and authority at the same time. And they go they go hand in hand. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, because of what Allah has given one over the other and what they spend, because of the two, not just one, because of both. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, someone would have to make, have to be the, 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 
ultimate decider, as George Bush said, which turned out to be a correct word, I guess. When someone would be would end, end up being the ultimate decider after mutual consultation and all of that, and God had given men that right, which we will discuss later to to talk about the scope of that right and the exceptions and contingencies and all of that. We will discuss this in detail, inshallah. But yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, there is some position of authority here that, that comes with the responsibility that Allah had placed on men. And the Prophet sallallahu said, and and I, I I'm quite sure that women are familiar with this hadith as well. If the woman prayed her five daily prayers, fasted her month of Ramadan, and maintained maintained her chastity and obeyed her husband, it will be said to her, "Enter paradise from whichever gate you please." And that's darajat sabbatin. That it will say, you know, the you know, it, there is another hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said, "Abu Bakr will be called from all the gates of paradise." So a woman can reach or that level of just by praying the, the five daily prayers and fasting the month of Ramadan and uh, you know maintaining her chastity and obeying her husband because that is not easy. That is not easy. And there's a recognition here. Now, ta'a, or obedience does not mean like that there is like it's 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 uh so like a military unit where someone is given orders all the time and someone is receiving orders that doesn't work and the marriage would not work like this and most of the reasonable men they they rarely give orders extremely rarely give orders to their wives they may hold the right to make the final decision concerning more important issues they are not going to tell her you know, I want the couch here, and I want the, the armchair there, and I want the, this to be yellow, and I want to, you know, people who abuse that right, people who overspend, you know, if they have like some capital, they overspend from it, they'll, they'll lose it. But, you know, at, at some point, he may say, no, I think that, you know, we should move to Kentucky because there is this good Islamic school, or there is, and certainly if there if there are no prenuptial agreements that we don't move, because those prenuptial agreements also would, uh, would prevent him from that. If there is no such agreement, then he may say, no, I think that my kids should go to that Islamic school, and if there is Certainly, after mutual consultation, after deliberation, after all of this, but at one point he may have the right, or he does have the right to say, "No, I think the kids should go to that school." So that's the 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 ta'a, you know, that's that's establishing the concept in general, the concept of ta'a in general. Yes, that concept does exist. Now there are two issues that we need to discuss: the scope, which we will keep for later, but first ta'a in general. To anyone other than Allah and His Messenger, what does that mean? What does ta'a in general mean? So ta'a in Islam has been used in different contexts. In the context of obeying Allah and His Messenger, and that's an absolute ta'a, and it's 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 absolute absolute with Allah, with regard to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. With regard to the Messenger, it's because we believe that He has the infallible messenger of God, and he's relaying to us a message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, but then aside from that, you know, there is thought with it under the, the, the people in charge, the people in authority. There is thought with it, and, you know, obeying the parents, and there is thought, 
you know, obeying the husband. So Taha in general, aside from the Taha of Allah and his messenger, in general, it has contingencies. What are those contingencies? who said in Aritha's report about Bukhari and Muslim, he relates from the Prophet that he said, There is no obedience at the expense of disobeying Allah or in, 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 in disobeying Allah. There is no obedience. Obedience should only be given to that which is ma'ruf. What is ma'ruf? If you look at the translations of ma'ruf, they, they will translate this as good. They translate this as good and reasonable. They translate this as good and universally recognized. Because ma'ruf comes from Arafat to know, you know, so it is universally recognized. In other words, sensible. Sensible according to whom? According to the majority of sensible people. Same people, you know, that's how we define this. So, so what does that hadith mean? That hadith means, first, that if that husband orders his wife, commands his wife to do something haram, she does not, she should not listen to him. It's not like that she doesn't have to, she should not listen to him. If he orders her to do something that is makruh or dubious, th then there is some controversy here. If, you know, and, and, and then, but, but let us keep this for later because we will talk about the scope of obedience to the husband because it is not like the scope of obedience to the parents. It is different from the scope of obedience to the parents. It is stronger but narrower and we will explain this later. So if the husband, for instance, tells his wife to not to not pray, to, to not do any the prayers or something like this, she doesn't need to listen to him. If he tells her don't to do, you know, the nafl or the sunnah after dhuhr because we need to go somewhere or do something, then she would listen to him that one time. If, 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 they, if he needs something that's pertinent to marriage, then, then there is the, the so this is the, 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 the part about la ta'afi ma'asiyatillah, no, you know, obedience. Uh, in disobeying Allah or at the expense of disobeying Allah. So what about ma'roof? Ma'roof means three things. Uh, in order for something to be ma'roof, it should be doable because, you know, Allah does not burn the soul beyond its capacity. It should be harmless because, again, the Prophet said, there should be no harm or reciprocation of harm. It should be also purposeful, which is extremely important, purposeful. And now we're not just talking about the wife and husband. We're talking about the child and the parent. If the parent orders the child to do something purposeless, senseless, the child does not need to listen because it is senseless. In fact, the Imam of Nahajar said that I have seen of some parents with regard to their children things that are utterly senseless, making anyone hearing them or hearing about them pardon the child and blame the parent. The same Imam al-Hajar al-Haytami, rahimahullah, another al-Asqalani, but al-Haytami, rahimahullah, said, you know, if, if the child does not need to listen to his father, if he basically commands him to follow his mother. For this, when devoid of a good reason, is basically foolishness. So he said, so, so this is the child with the parent now. So if the parent says to the child, follow this mother or that mother, the child does not need 
does not have to listen. If there is no point in the command, he does not have uh, to listen. Imam Taymiyyah added a very important contingency here. He said that, that the child should obey the, the parents, and we're talking about Ta'a in general here, you know, where we're going to come to the wife and husband uh, later, that the child should obey his parents, even if they're fasiq, and that's the clear statement of Imam, or the, the apparent meaning of the statement of Imam Ahmad. But then he adds, this pertains though to that which bears a benefit to them and no harm to him. That which, you know, uh, bears benefit to them and no harm to him. So in order for something to be purposeful, it has to have a benefit for the person, for, for the order, for the person who made the order. It's, it should not be senseless. So a, a husband, for instance, cannot say to his wife, you know, face the wall and raise your hands. It's that, because that's senseless. And, you know, the, the, many things that, that would not be of benefit for the husband or may cause harm uh, to the wife, or may, may just have no purpose in them, these are not orders to be obeyed. I'm going to interrupt you really quickly, uh, sorry, but in terms of this definition of senselessness, um, and as you said, there should be a benefit to the husband, what if, and this is something very common, so you gave the example of, you know, not following the same madhab just because, but if the husband it, for example, says, well, no, this just makes me feel better and I prefer this and, and that's it and you don't need to have any more convincing arguments. Um, and this is something that unfortunately it does come up a lot or a wife will say, this makes no sense to me. This makes no sense to my family. This makes no sense to my friends. And he will say, well, it doesn't have to make sense to you because it makes sense to me and this is my reasoning and often it's it, it can be boiled down to this is just what I want and that's it and you're my wife, so obey me. Um, and it can be anything from something minor to something more serious. And we will come to more specific examples as well, I think, afterwards. Uh, but even this definition of senseless or uh, there's no point to it, it can often become a point of contention, both with, not just within a couple, but even if they take it back to their families, for example. One family might say, yeah, you know, in our family culture, uh, it doesn't have to make sense to everybody else, but it works for us and, you know, vice versa. We would have two things to answer. One of them is, is this order, uh, because we've talked about Ta in general, and we've talked about Ta to those that that have a position of leadership in general. Aside from Allah and his messenger, there are contingencies. Those contingencies should not be Masaya. They should not ask you to abandon, you know, even a sunnah all the time. It's controversial whether they can ask you to do makruh or something that's dubious or not, but it should also be, uh, you know, harmless. It should be doable and it should be purposeful. And purposeful will be determined by the people who, you know, purposeful will be determined by sensible people. And we may come in to discuss this in greater detail after I address the issue of the scope of wifely obedience because the scope is important so now that we have said that uh that these are contingencies that apply to any ta'a um or any obedience to any uh, authority figure particularly the you know those who are in charge uh, those are authority parents husbands and so on uh, when it comes to wife and husband in particular because the wife 
is not the child of the husband. And although many scholars have stated clearly that Haq Zawj, or the right of the husband, supersedes Haq al-Walid, or the father, or the mother, or the, or the right of the parent, that is correct if there is a conflict, because now this is a new family now. And, you know, this is, you know, <laughs> this is not just an Islamic thing, but but this is a new family that has its own sort of priorities. And uh, if the if the parents uh, intervene, that will cause problems. So it is natural that this nuclear family now will have to have its priorities and will have to basically prioritize their uh, well-being as a family. So during the time of Shifa, Nazimat al-Fatwa, in Azhar during the time of Sheikh Abdul Majid Salim, they, they got that question about you know which which right is uh, so you know superior the the right of the husband or the right of the parent, and they said it's the right of the husband. However, we must caution here that this is in turn that this is in the case of conflict. Father wants her to do something, husband wants her to do something else. What should she do? The right of the husband is superior here. But the right of the husband is narrower than the right of the father because the obedience to obedience to parents is just because they are parents. But the obedience to the husband is because of the contract. There is a contract. Marriage is a contract. And it's a contractual relationship. It is not a parental relationship. It is a contractual relationship. And uh, therefore, the, you know, the obe obedience to the husband is narrower in scope than obedience to the parents. And there is a particular book that uh, addressed this in some detail, the issue of the scope of, of, of wifely obedience. The book is a book by Sheikh Atiyah Sakr, who was also like a member of the Fatwa Committee of Al-Azhar, and he was a, a very, very distinguished scholar, a very... Uh, good and distinguished scholar. He wrote a book called uh, Encyclopedia of the Family Under the Care of Islam. And in this book, he, he mentioned that the scope, you know, th there could be four ways to imagine the scope of obedience. And he mentioned scholarly statements that support each one, but not each one of the four, but each one of the three. One, he said, we should completely discard, uh, which is the cultural perspective, the cultural perspective that the, the wife needs to obey the husband all the time. You just throw away that because that's not, you know, senseless. But the three that he said can be supported by uh, scholarly statements are one, you know, and going from the widest to the narrowest now. One, she should obey the husband in everything, you know, that is uh, that is good and reasonable. Just like the hadith says, good and reasonable. The second narrows the scope. And the second, you could uh, find supporting statements from scholars. For instance, Ibn al-Jaim al-Hanafi, in his book al-Bahr al-Rahiq, says that a woman does not have to obey her husband in all matters. The obedience only applies to those that pertain to marriage and matters relate to marriage. You know, So matters that, you know, that pertain to marriage and related to marriage.
So that that's sort of a little bit narrower. The narrowest is supported by several statements by Imam Nawi, rahimahullah, where he uh, clearly said in several places of Sharp Muslim, his commentary on Muslim, that a wife, uh, that the obedience uh, that is completely binded, although he does mention that women have been, good women have been obedient and, and much more than that and have always, you know, been extending their, their obedience and their service to their families and their, their husbands, and, uh, you know, much more than that. But he said that when it comes to the contract of marriage and the, what the contract makes binding on women, obedience applies to two areas only. One, his right to intimacy. Two, leaving his his home leaving his home he he had she has to seek his permission to leave his home and he has the right to intimacy certainly with certain uh, exceptions that we may discuss if you want but but that goes by the, you know we go back now and say that when the husband tells the wife do this do this and the wife says it's not sensible. We have to first ask ourselves: It does it apply to marriage, or is it just an order that doesn't have anything to do with the marital relationship and the family life? Family life. We said that there are three different sort of levels of obedience here. The one in the middle, you know, the one we will discard. Three, we will keep with us. You know, the, the woman who wants to be the ideal wife, the greatest wife, is the woman who will just obey her husband in all things, as long as she will forget about the scope. She'll just obey their husband in all things, as long as the command is good and reasonable. The second level, which is the middle level, she will obey her husband in all things that pertain to family life. The third, which is the narrowest and the most binding, obey him uh, with regard to two matters, the right and intimacy, and not leaving his home uh, without his uh, permission. So if it, uh, you know, if the, the woman chose that she, that she would obey only with regard to the narrowest scope, uh, which could make, uh, you know, life a little bit more difficult, but, you know, she would not be at fault, at least according to some of the Muslim scholars and you know, part of our heritage, and then if he gives her a, a command that does not pertain to these issues, she may say, well, I don't have to listen. But if, let's say, he, uh, he tells her to brush the kid's teeth every night before they go to bed, does this fall under, you know, right to intimacy and, you know, not leaving his home without his permission? No. Does this fall under family life? Yes. So and she decided that she will obey you, within that sort of category, then is brushing the kid's teeth every night something most sensible people would find good, would find reasonable? Yes or no, then we have to determine if it is if the answer to this is yes or no. But if there is dispute, then we have five different levels to determine the right answer. One is Shara. Does, does the, the, the Shara address this issue and the Tashara tell us what's good here. If not, we have something called the Shart. If there is a prenuptial agreement about this to determine what's right, Shart and Muslimuna ala shurutihim. Muslims are bound by their conditions, except for a condition that makes halal what's haram and haram that's what is halal. The third is an arf, which are customs, people's customs. 
there is a legal principle that says that which is not specified by the shara should be determined by people's customs. Okay, that didn't work. Then we have a sud, which is basically reconciliation through arbitration. We have arbitrators, we bring arbitrators from Adhu Hakaman Minhali or Hakaman Minhaliya, you know, sent to them like an arbitrator from their family, an arbitrator from his family. If that does not, if that does not resolve the problem, then Qada, which is, you know, litigation to go to court to, to, decide, to decide for us. Certainly it is hoped that most of our disagreements can be resolved without going through those five levels. So that answers some things and then of course leaves even more questions um but i think you've done a good job of uh, laying out the abstract the principles of uh, of these issues and these matters um but then there are certain explicit examples like i believe there is a hadith that speaks uh about you know not the, the husband's right over a wife includes not allowing people into his home without his permission and that leads to so many questions in and of itself so uh, you know, the assumption is that the husband is providing for the home, therefore it is his home. But what if a woman is also paying for the home, as often happens today in dual income families? You know, is it still his home or is it also now her home and she can consider who she wants to let in or not? Um, can she allow her family members in, even if he doesn't want them to be there or friends that he doesn't like uh, and she wants to have them visit, for example? Um, that's just one example. Then you have, as you mentioned, not leaving the home without his permission. And elaboration on that, again, between the ta'a and ma'roof uh, and the the space that that women have to negotiate this or consider this. Um, a lot of women wonder, how is this not considered imprisoning women? Because there are, there are, unfortunately, men, even in the West, who will literally tell their wives, I don't want you to leave the house, um, except if it's a, a life or death matter, or only you can go to X, Y, Z places and it's, I don't know, uh, pick the kids up from school or or something urgent and you cannot leave for any other circumstance. Um, he tells her, no, I don't want you to visit your family or your friends. Uh, how Or don't go to the masjid. And of course, we have a very clear hadith that says, don't prevent the female slaves of Allah from going to the masjid. Um, but there are men who will still insist on this. Um is the condition I think mentioned in the hadith about protecting um, his home, his property, his wealth in his absence. Uh, you know, what exactly does this mean? And of course, that final one that you mentioned, uh, responding to intimacy and what is the scope and the extent of that? I know that's a very, very detailed question. We can't answer everything that comes up with that. But just generally, I know these are explicit things that have been mentioned in certain narrations and questions arise based on that as well okay so taking this one by one because you know the answer could be uh, extremely detailed i'll be detailed until you, you stop me i'll just say whatever uh needs to be said but if you want me to yeah if you if you're interested in more brevity you let me know the first question that you asked well you, you you brought up three different issues. The first one is letting people into his home. Is is there is there such concept? Yes. The Prophet said in a hadith that's reported by Bukhari that a woman should not fast when her husband is present without his permission and she should not invite, let people into his home without his permission. And the hadith said while he's present. So some of the scholars said that this is while he's present because if he's present and he doesn't want certain people to come, then he's 
you know, they will cause disruption. And the kind of he wants to be with his wife alone, then, you know, she should not be inviting people to disrupt their sort of time together. What if he is not present? Should she be able to invite people uh, into his home? Uh, generally, yes. You know, because that's an art for that. She should be able to invite people into his home uh, without a problem. Unless he says that I do not want uh, this or that person to come into my home or to be let into my home, then in this case she should not, but there are still some contingencies here. One, can he say to her, I do not want your parents to come? According to the majority of scholars, no, he cannot. You know, so so the Hanafis have two different positions. The seems that the stronger position within the Hanafi madhab, and that's the position of the Maliki madhab, he cannot prevent his parents-in-law from visiting uh, once a week. Uh, he cannot prevent other maharim from visiting once a year, they say. But but that also is something that, that is based on culture and based on certain expectations they had in those times. But the, the, the bottom line is they said that he cannot prevent her from bringing in her parents-in-law, her other maharim, which is non-marriageable kin, and certainly he cannot prevent her from bringing in her children from another husband. They said daily even. So they said daily for the children from another husband. They said weekly for, for the parents and they said yearly for other kin, non-marriageable kin. The Hanbalis would agree and they say unless she's causing, you know, that the person that's coming in is causing a fitna between them. In this case, he can basically prevent them from, from coming if they're causing fitna and this could be escalated to a law and, and, and court and so on and so forth. But if, if, if this is escalated to the court, the Malikis would come back and say, if, 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 uh, if this goes to the court, the, the Malikis would come back and say, if the court finds a good grounds for his claim that this person or that person is causing fitna between him and his wife, then then the court will basically allow them in still uh, with a sort of a chaperone or like uh, some escort, some sort uh, that 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 uh, may be paid by the visitor, not the husband. But if the court finds no grounds for the husband's claim and it's just a, a claim, then he would pay for that escort. So that is, you know, uh, people visiting her. Now, you mentioned something about, you know, paying for, you know, the paying part of the rent and being a co-owner. Many people will think that this does not cause any wrinkles or problems. It, In reality, it actually does. Many people would say that if this is still his home, he's still the husband, he's still the head of the household. But it is not, you know, it's not completely without problems here. One problem is, if this was not his home and her home, like she's paying fully, Imam Nawawi said, for instance, that the reason why uh, the wife uh, cannot let people into his home, he said something that, that could be understood to mean, or was understood by later scholars like Ibn Hajar al-Qurtubi, Imam al-Kabirah, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani and al-Qurtubi, uh, the, the, the one who wrote a commentary on Muslim. He said that the Nawi may have may be understood to mean that she cannot let people into his home because it is his home. He owns it. And if he doesn't own it, then it does not apply. Ibn Hajar and Qurtubi disagreed. 
and the vast majority of scholars would disagree. But at the same time, if we have a joint ownership of the home, or she is considered from, from an Islamic perspective, it's called joint ownership or, you know, between them, which is basically each one of them is non-possessory, a co-owner or co-tenant. Each one of them does not have the right to dispose of or to make any decisions regarding the property without the consent of the other. So she can cause him problems also in, in this case because they have joint ownership or they are non-possessory co-tenants. So she may also refuse or deny him the right to bring in his, his guests. So... At the end of the day, you should be should just be kind to each other and just mutually agree on an arrangement that will be good for both of them and good for the family. But yes, you know the fact if if she's uh, paying for half of the rent, this will cause some wrinkles here. Uh, not, it will not completely do away with the concept, but it will cause some difficulties in applying it. So that's that. Uh, you also talked about. She going out like that. That she would. She cannot leave his his home without his permission. Now there are exceptions here. There are exceptions here. She cannot leave the home without his permission. What are the exceptions? One, Sheikh Zakaria Ansari, rahimahullah, said that she can leave without his permission to go to court because if she wants to complain against that, to go to a mufti, to uh, to earn a living if he's not maintaining, so he's supporting her or maintaining her. And we can have to this, you know, go to, to go to the doctor if there is like a, a like a real need in healthcare. And the, the scholars also discussed, you know, her visiting her, her family members. Can he prevent her from visiting her family members? And it seems that the Hanafis and Malikis again don't find grounds for that for, for for barring her from visiting her family members, and they would allow her to go visit her family members. In fact, the Hanafis would say the parents uh, on weekly basis, with or without his permission. So it's not contingent on his permission to visit their parents on weekly basis. So Hanafis and Malikis in this regard would both say that she can go without her permission uh, to visit her parents. They would also say that she can go without her permission to visit her non-marriageable kin once a year. But like I said, these are also issues that were, that, that, you know, that's how often people would visit uh, during their times. And now, the last uh, last issue here, I said before, and this, this is something that needs to be repeated. You know, there is the Shara'i first, then there is the short, which is agreement. And I think that men and women need to invest some time before they get married in discussing many of those issues in some detail and agreeing on sort of... And then the woman needs to, you know, if she is really quite passionate about some of these issues and she is concerned that her husband may not be flexible enough, then she can make these conditions in the in the contract. And conditions when overrule it, you know, get anything, you know, in, 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 in that regard. Unless the condition itself makes halal haram or haram halal. But if she makes it a condition that she will go to work, that is a valid condition. Hanbaris in particular are basically the, the most 
flexible madhab in terms of the conditions that the wife can can stipulate in her marriage contract. They would allow her to make any condition that is of benefit for her and that does not make haram halal or halal haram. They even said that she can make a condition against polygamy or she can stipulate in the marriage that if he decided to marry a second wife, that she would have the right to uh, separation. And they allowed her to make that condition. The three other mother have did not. But the Hanbali said there is a benefit for her in this condition. And that condition does not make haram haram. It didn't make it haram. It just made it restricted for him while married to her. It, you know, But if he insists on going out and marrying a second wife, all she asks is to be released from that marriage. She did not, you know, she did not stipulate that the second marriage would be haram. She just said, if you do, I need to be released. So, you know, many of these things, you know, can be discussed prior to marriage. And if the wife feels particularly, or potential wife feels particularly passionate about some of these issues, stipulate them. Make that make it clear that that you, you have those demands. The last part or the last the, the, the third uh, issue we talked about not letting people into his home without his permission we talked about not going out uh, without his permission and the exceptions there and that the last part is about intimacy and that is extremely emphasized and I'm, I'm just you know people need to know that like I said before you know that you just read read why Men are not getting married anymore in the mainstream culture because they're getting what the but what they're looking for without marriage. We do not want to destroy marriage. Destroying marriage will be more harmful to women than men. It'll be harmful to both. It will ruin both, and it would ruin the society, but it will be more ruinous to women. So the issue of intimacy, the emphasis the Prophet ﷺ placed on this issue, the, the husband's right to intimacy, was great emphasis. And honestly speaking, the legislative miracle of, of the Qur'an and the Sunnah is one of the things that give me the greatest iman boost, you may say, because you, you do see the wisdom of these teachings and the older you get the more experience you have the more you the more wisdom you find in uh, these teachings the Imam al-Ghazali actually in Munkuthman al-Dalal he spoke about the miracles and and the cumulative growth of Iman because of of coming to you know learn about the, the deen and the wisdoms and, and that are spread out through the teachings of the Quran and Sunnah and so forth so many people would would find a lot of solace in, in this and they would find certainty and they grow their certainty by learning these things. So the Prophet emphasized this a, a great deal. In fact, there is a hadith in Bukhari, a Muslim from Abu Hurairah, where the Prophet Sallallahu When a man invites his, his, or asks for intimacy or invites his wife to his bed and she refuses, the angels will curse her until the morning. And, you know, we, this is a, you know, the, the, there is a, the, is there is a genre of a hadith in this regard that the Prophet وسلم, in, in one hadith mentioned, even if she is on her camel saddle, he, he mentioned that a hadith, even if she's occupied at the oven. And there must be a reason why he emphasized this, because he knows that this, you know, the refusal, the not denying the husband to that right to intimacy will start a cascade evil and a when push the marriage into a vicious cycle, uh, that could be detrimental to the marriage. It could be a catalyst of the marriage's demise. So 
that is a, a sacred right. He got married, certainly for companionship, for children, for offspring, for procreation, and for, for all of this. But this is a major part of why people get married. Now, is this right that's absolute, that doesn't have any contingencies? No, it does have some contingencies. There are many contingencies, but we can categorize them into under three headings. One, he must have fulfilled his, his side of the contract also. He must be he must maintain that his wife and, and if he if he does not spend on his wife, then he uh, did not fulfill the side of the contract and she's not required to fulfill the side of the contract. And in fact, the scholars talk about that sort of reciprocation. Certainly that does not mean that the, the, the well, whenever the man gets a little bit, you know, encounters some difficulties, then the wife should sort of withhold that from him. I mean, hopefully marriages are not, hopefully our marriages are much better than this. And hopefully our men and women are much better than this. But we're just talking about the bare minimum here. We're talking about the skeleton. We're talking about the bare bones here of rights and obligations. We're talking about the legal aspects of this. We're not talking about courtesy and kindness and graciousness, which we started the discussion by saying that marriage would, would not thrive or survive without them. But if we're talking about rights and obligations, yes, yeah, she may actually, she's not required to, to fulfill that obligation if he has not fulfilled his obligations. The second uh, category would be uh, if that would compromise like uh, the shara. So if she's fasting, uh, like a wajib and mandatory fasting, they are in Hajj al-Umrah, she's having her period, all of these things, you know, you don't compromise the shara. The third category is when there is harm, such as if she is sick or such as if she, if there is like a contagious disease or something, and if, if, if intercourse causes pain or things of that nature, uh, that, that would be also uh, considered. And these are all exceptions. I would add to this, and I, you know, this is not clearly stated, but I would add to this the psychological sort of incapacity, the emotional incapacity. Certainly we have the, the, this beautiful uh, story of the com female companion that uh, whose child died, but uh, she, she kept that news from her husband who was coming back from a long trip and, and so on. And they were intimate th that night. And then she told them in the morning, and this is a beautiful story and shows like uh, selflessness and all of that stuff. But uh, you know, realistically, not to say that this was not realistic, but, in, you know, we're talking about us who are not as good. If her mother had just died, she may not be emotionally capable of this. She may, she, this may cause her, like, incapacity. And uh, it's between her and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If, if she's unable to do this, then that's between her and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But these are the exceptions that are mentioned uh, by the scholars. These are all the exceptions that are uh, mentioned by the scholars. And uh, I added to them uh, the psychological incapacity. And this would be deduced from some of what they said, deduced from the fact that psychological harm is harm. And the hadith of the Prophet should be no harm or separation of harm would apply to extreme uh, psychological incapacity or emotional 
So to jump in on this element of psychological distress or emotional harm, a lot of people would argue that is very wide and that could be applied in a lot of ways. And there could be um, tension in terms of how a woman would consider something to be emotionally distressing or psychologically harmful. Now, here's an example of a situation that I was presented with just very recently where there was uh, an argument between the husband and the wife and it wasn't made clear to me you know, how severe it was or not. Uh, but she essentially felt that... Uh, so there was the argument um, and he approached her pretty much immediately after saying, this is my right uh, and you cannot turn me down. And she felt very hurt and as if she's being used. And so she was asking, does that... Does my emotional state here not count for anything do I have no say in this and it's not that she's going to withhold forever it's not even some people might say oh well you know it's weaponizing sex but many women would say no we're not weaponizing it we're just genuinely not in the place uh to uh, to be open to this uh, in a manner that's not distressing or harmful to us because of this context what would you say to that the, the idea here is Psychological harm needs to be sort of significant harm that would lead to incapacity, not just to being like upset, not just to being irritated, but incapacity. You know, I give the example of, you know, someone who received news of their mother's death, for instance, may not be capable of things like that. But if there is an argument, it's quite unbecoming, unbefitting of the husband to uh, ask for intimacy before he resolves the argument. The last Panotara says that we should basically have the right approach. And that was explained by, you know, Ulatafa were, you know, being like joyful and kissing and hugging and things of, of that nature as, as the right approach to intimacy. And some people don't do this. The prophets also sometimes you know, rebuked the people who would beat their wives in the morning and come later in the day to hug them or have intimacy with them. He said one of you beats his wife like he would beat his stallion and then he would come uh, turn around and hug her. Uh, so he was pointing out the sort of the, the awkwardness of this behavior and it is truly a very awkward behavior and most sensible men and most decent men, you know, I would say here, Decent men would not, right? Wouldn't like decent, sensible men would not do this. However, if she diffuses the tension by agreeing to to intimacy, she may actually she may actually change his heart. She may actually really transform him by showing him that you know her commitment to to the dean, her commitment to the marriage, she may be able to transform them. Now, at the end of the day, if this is a person that is not worth, that she had grown resentful of, and that it's a marriage that is not worth keeping, then there are ways to get out of this marriage. There are ways to get out of this marriage. The final word is, if she is incapable, like psychologically completely incapable, like this is going to cause her, this is causing her real hard and she knows that and she can answer to god about that then then that's a different story but i would urge like the sisters to uh realize that the, this this is not helpful you know like denying the hus their husband's intimacy is not helpful 
uh, is destructive uh, to ma the marriage. And just as much as, you know, and, and I'm not saying that this is for that or this is in exchange for that. I'm not saying that marriage is, is way beyond this, but the husband's obligations also do not drop because he's upset. Like it's like you know, you know, it's not like he's going to say, "I'm not going to work. I'm not going to provide for the family because I am upset." He would not be allowed to do that. So sometimes we sort of commit to our obligations despite our discomfort, and it is hope to that we will be rewarded for this. And it is hope to that this behavior, when be in and of itself, transformative to the other party. I will push back a little bit on that just to say that, again, common sentiments that are shared are, well, no, it doesn't lead to appreciation or, you know, transformation of the other party. It actually just leads to more entitlement or enablement of this attitude where, oh, it doesn't matter how she feels. Now, you mentioned the bit about, you know, if if she feels comfortable, you know, being held accountable in front of Allah and she truly feels like, you know, this is distressing enough that if I say no, it's not out of just being petty or spiteful or whatever. It's genuinely going to be harmful because, of course, psychological distress is not something that necessarily everybody can can measure the same way. Uh, putting aside the situation of, you know, a death in the family, um, as we know, there can be many different tense situations between couples. Maybe it's not an abusive situation in and of itself, but, you know, some unhealthy patterns have emerged or there's a serious issue that has come up and, you know, one party or the other may be uh, at fault. Um, but when this situation arises and she genuinely feels like, I cannot do this, um, and he might use that hadith, okay, well, the angels will curse you then. And she would be, would she theoretically be able to counter, well, Allah knows that I am in such a state, um, it would genuinely be harmful to me, and I'm willing to stand in front of Allah and uh, and answer for this, basically. Um Essentially, you would be a stalemate. Um, but would you say, you know, there's there's room to have that kind of perspective? Well, this is something that, uh, that, that the issue here is that it, this is a subjective thing. And we're talking about sort of real harm. like, And we are not denying that psychological harm is real harm. But we're talking about her being incapable now in general, Allah does not bear the soul beyond its capacity. Who determines the capacity of each soul? Everybody determines their capacity. But again, at the same time, they would have to answer, you know, to this before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they would have to prepare an answer if, if, that, if there is true incapacity or not. I suppose in the end, with this issue, as with so many others related to marriage, it goes back to that issue of the graciousness and you know, giving other people or the other party their rights and obligations while not demanding the same. And this would go for both the husband and the wife. So I understand it's a very sticky situation and a complex issue uh, to to make any statements of. And people will almost inevitably find a reason to bring up certain other exceptions or, you know, what about this? What about that? And they may all be valid situations in and of themselves. But we, of course, can't sit here and debate every single possibility of what might exist. Uh, so moving on from that, the really big other question that is tied to all of this, what are the limits and the extents of such obedience? And you did touch on, on it in some detail, the three different categories um, and so on and so forth. But you brought up, especially with regards to Ma'ruf, what is good and reasonable and sensible people? Now, 
how do we contend with different ideas of what is reasonable, especially given that we are in a multicultural society, there are Muslims of different cultural backgrounds, they have different madhahib. Um, some people might say, like one one individual might say, I think it's reasonable to tell my wife what to wear, uh, what to eat, never to leave the house except for X, Y, Z circumstance. And you did, you know, cover that a little bit. Um, but they will say this is reasonable to me in my culture, in my context. It's reasonable to make my wife say, uh, serve my parents every day, even if she doesn't want to. But this is normative in my background. Uh, and I think it's reasonable and I can pull out, you know, X number of people to say, yeah, this is reasonable. Um, and somebody else might say none of that is reasonable. And these kinds of cases, these discussions come up very often. Those of us involved in our communities are very aware of scenarios like this, even though it's not, uh, you know, statistically recorded. There might not be uh, any legal action involved because of, you know, perhaps the lack of Sharia boards in certain areas. There's obviously no central scholarly body in the West. Um, there's no regulation of uh, any Islamic legal uh, authority. There's no ability to enforce any of that. There's just, you know, these are very complex community and cultural dynamics how would you recommend, you know, thinking about this or approaching this discussion? Too many questions. Let me let me say that concerning our the last segment of our discussion, the idea that an abusive husband will be reformed by denying them intimacy is also like uh, yeah, a wrong idea. And our discussion about the, the issue of intimacy and look at this discussion uh, against the backdrop of an abusive husband is would be incorrect because for an abusive husband, you know, the, the wife should make sure that she will try to work it out. But if the, this husband is irredeemably abusive, then to exit from this marriage would be the right course of action, not denying intimacy it's it's complete exiting from the marriage because denying intimacy would make the husband more aggressive or push him into being promiscuous so at the end of the day that you know i have neither one of these two options uh, would be in her favor or her best interest an abusive husband that is irredeemably abusive should be left and a marriage like this should be terminated that Ideal to to say, and perhaps I'm being a little pedantic here, but we have in the UK and Australia in particular, um, it's very known that when women try to seek exiting from such abusive marriages, particularly from Sharia courts or Sharia boards, they're very often actually turned back and told, no, uh, you don't have recourse to leave. Even if it's, you know, physical violence, there's evidence of physical violence. Uh, and they will say, no, the better thing here is, you know, stay for the sake of the children or whatever other reasons are given. Um, and be patient because then he'll change after that or just wait it out because, you know, he won't always be abusive. Eventually, eventually he'll become an old man. He won't be able to hit you anymore. Um, and unfortunately, these are very real answers and very real cases that are given to women who are, again, seeking to exit these marriages. Um, and they're told they have no Islamic recourse. You know, they will be cursed if they try and leave that marriage. They don't have the right to, uh, obviously, the husband has to give the talaq or the or give permission for the khala. The board itself is not willing to give a fesh, um uh, for this situation. So she is essentially stuck 
in this situation and you know there's an abusive man she can't get out and she's in a situation now where you know sometimes she might be able to push back and say no and deny intimacy and he might be angry um and he might continue and he will continue to be abusive regardless but for themselves you know just being able to know that i'm not going to be punished by allah if i uh, if i refuse in this circumstance and i know it's complicated but I would like to know your perspective on this. Keep in mind that, uh, like Anja, the Assembly Muslim Jurist of America, put together a family code, which is, you know, a sort of, this would be called Qanun al-Hadish of in the United Muslim countries, which is family laws. And you could easily sort of Google this, Amja family code, and it will come up. And in that family code, we did state clearly that the wife would be entitled to khula, even without proving abuse, even without being able to prove abuse. If she is able to prove abuse, she would be entitled to court-enforced divorce. But if she's unable to prove abuse and the reconciliation is not possible, then she would be entitled to khala if she's determined to terminate the marriage. And I hope that Many, many imams here in the U.S. follow the Hamja family code. Uh, many imams elsewhere, uh, whether they follow Hamja family code or they don't follow Hamja code, they follow that line of thinking. And uh, they would not basically keep a woman against their wish in an irredeemable marriage. So anyway, that, that, that's, that was Hamja's contribution to uh, this matter. And I, and I hope that this would be the right way of addressing those issues because staying in like a, a terrible marriage may not be the right answer a terrible irredeemable marriage will be toxic and destructive that does not to say that she would not get rewarded if she was patient because of her children or because of something else you know we ask Allah to reward her and we ask Allah to give her strength and you know, go forgive all those women strength and patience and in comfort and fill their hearts with contentment and hope. But at the same time, there is a way out that should be utilized by those who are in dire need for it. Going back to the to the issues of you know what's reasonable and uh, you know somebody thinks that he can tell his wife what to wear and what to eat and and so on. You can't even the Imam Taymiyyah, Rahimahullah, said that uh, a parent may not you know, does not have the right to command his child to eat something they uh, don't desire. And the child is not obliged to eat something they don't desire because of the parent's command, because that's also senseless. If the child ate it to please the parent, the child would be rewarded. But if the child did not, he would not be blameworthy. Uh, and, and if this is the child, as we said before, the scope of wifely obedience is narrower than the scope of, you know, parental rights and, and, and so on. So that's one thing. The second is there is a disagreement within the Shafi'i and Hanbali Madhab. There is a disagreement whether a, a woman have, has to follow her husband. Like if a woman believes that something is uh, makru and the husband believes it's haram, can he force his opinion on her? There is a disagreement within the Madhab and the Imam al in his book of Mughni give the example of a woman who believes that certain drinks are not haram, you know, this is like um, the disagreement within the different madhab, certain types of drinks are not haram, while the husband believes that those drinks are haram, can the husband, you know, force his madhab on her, and that there is a disagreement. Some of the Shafi'i and Hanbali scholars said yes, 
Some said no, and I believe that he should not because matters of worship and matters of de uh, devotion to God are not directly pertinent to, to marriage. The last uh, part, which is service, serving, you know, it, it seems that the majority of the, uh, you know, of the scholars in the form of that had, uh, did not, you know, did not, or the majority of the scholars of the form of that have indicated that women are not bound to serve the husband, let alone the parents-in-law. But there are people like Ibn Abi Shayba and Abu Thawr and Abdul Zajani and Ibn Habib al-Maliki and Ibn al-Arabi and Ibn Taymiyyah who said no, that this would not be fair. Ibn Habib said in Wadahab that the Prophet ﷺ divided the work between Ali and Aisha where Ali does the work outside, Ali and Fatima, I'm sorry, where Ali does the work outside and Fatima does the work inside. So even if we accept the position of those scholars who are the minority that the wife is bound to, is, is, is obliged to or bound to serve her husband, this would be to a, this would be basically to achieve equity and justice and fairness. If he will do the work outside, it does not make sense that he would come back and do the work uh, inside when, and you know, she she would not have any uh, responsibility. But that would not mean that we basically extended this to serving his parents and his family members. If she does, out of the kindness of her heart, that's charitable, that is kind, that is gracious, and he should kiss her hands every day for like doing that. But she is not bound Anna, to, to do it by the Sharia. She's not required to do it by, you know, any statement in the Quran or the Sunnah. And like I said, it, it seems that the earlier scholars, the majority of the earlier scholars, did not even think that the marriage contract would make it required for her to serve her husband even. But that's, you know, that's not what, what I uphold or promote because of the, the word I promote equity and equity you know we have to 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 be working for fairness if she's working outside then they split the work inside and they split the work outside and they split the the cost of you know the expenses and they split if that's if that's their sort of style then that is fine most of the time most of the time women need to prioritize the work inside even if they help outside and most of the time men need to prioritize the work outside even if they help inside but we have to to basically find a, a point of equilibrium where just where justice is served between them and an arrangement that is equitable that will not overwhelm either one of them and they have to figure this out you know if he is working 80 hours a week and she's working 20 hours a week and he's contributing you know most uh, to, to you know most of the expenses uh, he's responsible for them then she may need to do more of the work inside and, and so on so it's it's a matter of you know equity justice fairness so that none of them uh, gets burnt out that is a very uh, balanced way of portraying it. Now, one thing you had brought up earlier was a connection between uh, the thaw of the wife and the obligations of the husband. And, and you mentioned to some extent, nafaqa. Now, if you could elaborate a little bit on what is the connection between nafaqa and obedience? 
if a husband is not providing 100% for his wife's basic nafaka for her maintenance, is she obligated to obey him? And you had specifically mentioned within the context of uh, responding to intimacy, but one would also question, you know, even the other things, even under the um, restricted obedience uh, that you explained, how does this connection work? So does it, would it apply to dual income households? As we just spoke about, you know, a woman who also works and many families nowadays are dual income. Uh, would a wife be able to push back and say, hey, um, I'm working and not just because uh, she's doing it for fun or whatever, but he has allowed her to or possibly even requested it. Um, or what if a husband is choosing not to provide completely and you know, telling his wife, you need to work? Where would, how does this connect with the nafaqa and ta'a? Okay, I'll give you an example to show you how much they they kept, they basically connected the two, or how much they felt that the two are interdependent in in in, in many ways. So that they feel that the husband that this is the obligation, this is the primary obligation on the husband in the marriage project. I mean, he yes, when you get married, you you are responsible for your wife financially and so on. And so in, in the Hanbali Matab, they. Talk about, for instance, a wife who's gnashes, like rebellious during the day, but not at night, or vice versa. She will deserve the nafaqa during the day, but not during the night, and vice versa. So if he's spending on her, you know, if if he's spending on her half of the time, so he is entitled to half uh, to be to be to obedience half of the time. And certainly that would be awkward to to figure out how to do these things. But point to here that I am trying to make is that they really consider the this to be defaulting on as part of the contract and then uh, not being entitled to his rights. So he's not entitled to his rights if if he does not fulfill his obligations. And the asar of the zawjah, the zawjah that is unable to spend on his wife, certainly we're, we're, we're saying that you know, our marriages should be much better than this, and we all should be much better than this, and it's not expected of a good wife, you know, you know, think of the wife of Prophet Ayub, for instance, it's not expected of a good wife to snow away her husband when, because he went through some financial difficulty, but we're talking about the bare minimum here, the bare bones, we're talking about rights and obligations, yes, if he's not able if he's not spending on his wife, then he's not entitled to obedience. But at the same time, we have to go back and say, what did they mean by not being able to spend? It's not, it's not what people think of spending nowadays. Certainly, he will have to provide an accommodation that is suitable for her. Most of us spend more than we should nowadays, and most of us ask for more than we need nowadays, the husband may say to the wife, no, no, I do not want you to contribute. I want you to stay home and I'll spend on the family, but I will spend within my means. If this is still, if he is still able to sustain the family within his means, sustain the family properly, because also like a, a woman who comes from a well-to-do family, may demand before the court that he uh, sustains her uh, properly uh, in a way that is befitting of her and befitting of her 
uh, socioeconomic background. But in, but if he says that I will do this, well, you know, with within my means, then that that is enough. If they decided that she will go out and she will contribute to the expenses of the household, and then. Some things will, will, will be re- renegotiated. A good wife would not make her husband feel like he lost his grandma because of this arrangement. A good husband will appreciate his wife's contribution and uh, be flexible and not be demanding. A good husband to begin with, like I said at the beginning, you know, spares those like the, the right to obedience to, you know, scenarios or cases that he really feels so strongly about, such as the education of his children or something of that nature. He doesn't use this card every day. He doesn't use this card, you know, in, in all matters, you know, big and small and even trivial. That would be, you know, and like that, that, that would be suicidal to, to their relationship. It would not be good conducive to any uh, harmony and to, uh, yeah, and to any sweetness in their relationship. But like I said, you know, with these new arrangements, they will need to renegotiate the, the burdens, the responsibilities. Uh, that rights and obligations, some things will need to be re- renegotiated. If we have an arrangement that is not the traditional arrangement, and such as the one that you mentioned, where there is, they're splitting the expenses 50-50. That's not a traditional arrangement, so let's go back to the sort of drone map and, and renegotiate some of the rights and obligations uh, in a way that will be conducive to harmony and in a way also that will not uh, basically tear apart our value system where the husband is still the head of the household. Uh, there is no institution that can afford to not have a head. That is destructive. So how do we keep the husband as the head of the household but renegotiate some of the uh, these arrangements and uh, some of these responsibilities and burdens of of the family, the fa- you know, that would be warranted. And I did write about this in, in the past. It, it certainly would be warranted. Bizarre for that. So there is one more question also related to uh, the connection between nafaqa and ta'a, which is uh, a circumstance that I've discovered over the years is actually very common where daily nafaqa or regular nafaqa is being paid for, but a mahar has not been paid for. Um, and this is to say that there was a mahar that was agreed upon at the beginning of the marriage, um, but it was either out of culture told, uh, like the wife is told, don't ever expect it, don't expect to ever receive it. And this is very common in um, the South Asian subcontinent, unfortunately. Uh, or cases where it said, oh, khalas, you don't need it anyways because um, you're getting nafaka anyways. So, you know, a good woman doesn't ask for her mahar. So it's on paper, but it's never actually paid. Or there's a promise, okay, it will be paid, it will be paid. Um, but when she asks for it, it's not given, there are excuses provided, whatever it might be. Uh, and just the mahar is never provided at all. Uh, in such a case where there is, you know, everyday nafaka, but the initial mahar, was never paid and there appears to be no intention of paying it. What do we do there? How does this connect with law at all? <laughs> well, that, that is a very, that's a very unfortunate uh, situation, uh, certainly, because that's not honoring the Sharia in any way. Uh, the Mahara needs to be paid and he's not entitled to his rights without paying the Mahara. If she, if she, if she 
basically offers him his rights. That's all of the kindness of her heart, but he's not entitled. So that seems very, like, regardless of the, the nafaqa that uh, is being paid afterwards, you know, rent, groceries, whatever. But the mahar is not there. He doesn't have any right to demand his rights, correct? Correct. Now, with regards to the rights, this should have probably been asked earlier, um, but it just kind of occurred a little bit later. There is the issue of where husbands are considered to be responsible um, for their wives uh, and their households in general, but particularly their wives. And this falls under the hadith of kullukum ra'in wa kullukum mas'ulun an Each one of you is a shepherd and will be uh, asked about their flock. And specifically with regards to the wife's religiosity or her uh, religiously dictated behavior. Now that could do with her salah. If she's not praying all of her salawat uh, in a day or on time. Um, or hijab, or he, she has friends that he thinks are a bad influence. These debates and discussions come up a lot as well. To what extent does the husband's authority and his right to ta'a uh, reach when it comes to these religious matters? And again, it might tie in a little bit to differences of opinion, but particularly, like we said, um, things like like friends that he might consider to be a bad influence and she might push back and say, well, no, you just don't like it because of X, Y, Z. Or he says, well, I believe hijab fulfills these X, Y, Z conditions. And she says, well, no, um, I think this is, you know, there's this other opinion that I follow that says, you know, a little bit of makeup is allowed, for example. Um, and it might get even more contentious, more detailed. Uh, does he have... Um, number one, that, that right to ta'a in these cases. And if he doesn't, how much responsibility is placed on him uh, for his wife's religious behavior or misbehavior, as the case may be? Well, uh, as you kindly uh, started the discussion by the hadith, each one of you is a shepherd, and each one of you is responsible for his flock. Well, yes, the man is, is the head of the household and he is responsible for the religious well-being of the household. So he does need to to basically inform them. He does need to exhort them and preach to them. And certainly he's not doing this all the time. It could, 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 could get overwhelming. The Prophet did not do this with the Sahaba all the time. Uh, but from time to time, he would preach to them and advise them. Uh, but the, the man should not stop doing this he, because that's his responsibility. Now, if she has a position that is different from his, she uh, listened to him or not. I did mention that Imam ibn Qadama did bring this up and he talked about certain types of drinks that were forbidden to some people and uh, permissible to others. And if two Muslims got married, then the husband believes that the drink is forbidden and the wife believes that it is uh, permissible in small amounts. Should uh, the husband have the right to prevent her from that or not? There is a disagreement within the Shafi'i Hanbari Method and there are other scholars for Radha Vibai who had uh, disagreed over this issue as well. So when, when we have a disagreement like this, and we don't have a clear statement from the Prophet to uh, decide the matter for us, then usually in, in, in Tarjif or in uh, basically uh, supporting one uh, position or favoring one position over another, uh, you're looking for the deed or evidence to, uh, to sort of uh, favor one over the other. And if there is no clear evidence, 
then you look for what is better for people. And that that is when your sort of personal bias and cultural bias may come into the picture. And I, I can't tell you that it is not my personal cultural bias to say that the matters of pure uh, devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should be left to the spiritual agency of the wife to determine for herself what is what she will follow. And the husband needs to remind her, advise her, like any good Muslim would advise another Muslim. Uh, the same applies also, you know, the, the other way around. Uh, because if she sees that he is falling short on his religious obligations, she should advise him uh, as well. But uh, then he would leave her to do what she believes to be to be right. That that's when he, when we're, when we talk about makruh uh, and hara, makruh issues, we talk about the uh, difference of opinion among uh, the scholars. So, but if she's doing something that is clearly haram, then he does have the obligation. It's 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 basically the double obligation as another Muslim and as a husband to uh, to basically command the good and forbid the evil. Amr bin Maruf and the and we have one more question with this the spa element. Can a husband waive his right to obedience? So say, you know, a couple is talking for a marriage and you did mention a condition is that we're not making the halal haram or the haram halal. Now, what if the woman proposes a condition of, okay, look, I'm not saying that this is, you know, it's haram for me to obey you, but what if, I, would you agree to waiving uh, your right to ta'a. So even if we're talking about the most uh, restricted uh, circumstance and whether it's the right to intimacy or anything else and you know, he, and he says, yeah, okay, anytime, you know, even if I ask for this, but you can say no and it's not going to be, you know, held against you. In theory, would this be considered acceptable or not? It wouldn't hold like he can retract at any time he wants. Just like if the husband, if the wife, if the, if the wife exempts him from nafaka, she can do it. She can say, well, I exempt you from nafaka, but it would not hold. And it would be a sort of revolt if she recounts it any time. Okay, so it would be one of those things where they can agree upon it, but if he changes his mind afterwards, then that becomes binding. Yes. All right. So, mashallah, that was an extremely detailed conversation overall. I think it was really beneficial for definitely for me. And I really hope that it's beneficial for our listeners, inshallah. And just to sum up everything we've talked about, and I know that's, that's going to be difficult, um, but just as your final words, how can Muslim men and women ultimately understand this concept of wifely obedience to husbands in a healthy way? And how can healthy marriages be established that respect a woman's sense of self while upholding this principle? Just, you know, it is uh, a brief a summary as possible. Most of our religiosity does not have much to do with religiosity, does not have much to do with true devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's based on sort of ideological conviction or cultural practices, um, how blind following, inherited beliefs. So we really need to figure out if we're if we want to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if we want personal refinement, spiritual growth and development. We need to make that decision and we need to make up our minds if if this if our Islam is truly for the sake of Allah, for the sake of drawing closer to the old God, God, our Lord. Allah, 
subhanahu And once we have made that determination, I think many things will fall in place. Our marriage, our, you know, our personal qualities, we'll be able to refine them. Uh, we will be able to fix our relationships with other people, neighbors, parents, family members, canning, co-workers. We will live in harmony and accord with, you know, the last creation because we are in harmony with our Creator. So it's a wholesome answer, a holistic answer, will have to start there. We have to commit to uh, be better Muslims in, a, in the true sense of the word and in the true meaning of uh, Islam. And if we do and we declare our need for his help and our dependence on him and our uh, poverty and inability and incapacity and our sort of wickedness as well, to declare all of this and to come to him with humility and ask him to fix us and to fix our relationships and then start uh, together. I mean, start to accept each other because we're not the companions of the Prophet neither us uh, men are the, you know, Sahaba or our uh, counterparts, the women are the Sahabiyat. So we need to accept each other and work together towards, uh, like I said, personal refinement and spiritual growth. There is not a, there is not that much time in life to waste on arguing and disputing and all of this anguish that we cost ourselves. Uh, just stay, you know, focused on your ultimate objective. And if we both are focused on the ultimate objective, it would unite our hearts because if it is one, it will basically bring us together on the same road towards the same objective and the same destination. So let's just help each other on, on this journey until we get to our uh, desired destination. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless our marriages and to protect our ummah uh, from all evil and put barakah in our children and our offspring. Thank you. Jazakallah al khair amin to the du'as. And again, I cannot express enough just how much I appreciate the time that you took for us to lay out in such a detailed and holistic manner this entire concept of ta'a, wifely ta'a in particular. And given how contentious it is, I think you laid out just a very, very uh, healthy way for everybody to understand this concept. Um, and I also urge listeners, if you are interested in more details like Fiqh Family, uh, Shahatim does have a YouTube channel where past uh, classes of his have been recorded. And I'm actually a huge fan of listening to Shahatim's uh, Fiqh Family, uh, which is available on YouTube and very easily accessible uh, and broken down in chapters, very detailed um, and very, very beneficial to learn from. So Barakallahu Fiq Shahatim once again. I really, really appreciate the time that you've given us and may Allah bless you and put uh, barakah in your work and continue to grant you tawfiq and all that you do for his sake. I mean. Thank you. Like him. It's like a lucky. 
To our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode and share your questions, your comments, and anything else that comes to mind below. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.